Hello, this is Caleb, and welcome to the movie that changed my life. I'm here with special guest star Ken Silvera. And three guesses which movie we'll be talking about today. Yay! John Williams is the best. Now, Kent, Kent was a film major. And he. <laughs> Much to my parents' chagrin. <laughs> and he was a stage actor. Uh, since I was five. <laughs> and he is the writer and creator of a graphic novel. Soon to be published, My Summer with the Hawaiian Fire Goddess. Look for it on Indie Planet and Comixology coming to you this summer. Plug it. And uh, he worked at spend Disney for your, seven years. Spend your summer with my summer with a Hawaiian Fire Goddess. <laughs> yes, yeah, so. Ken is, uh, he's, uh, he studied film. He's an authority on film. To some degree. <laughs> <laughs> to some degree. So my bachelor's tells me. So, this is a... <laughs> So now, with that in I'm mind... Like, I'm like the kid in the Simpsons movie, cleaning up after the aisle. Four years of film school for this? <laughs> exactly. I feel the same way with my English degree. So with all that in mind, today we asked you the question, what is the movie that changed your life? A Boy Named Charlie Brown? No. <laughs> that actually was one of them. There's, 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 it's hard to say there, was, there wasn't, like, one movie that inspired me to want to pursue all of this. Uh, comic books actually played a much bigger role in me wanting to pursue creative storytelling long before movies did. But, but for but, the sake of the podcast, for the sake I'm of, making you pick one. For the sake of what was the movie that actually got me interested in filmmaking. Yes. The one that, that Revelatory. Said, left impact. Where I kind of went, well, you know, I, I had to get over the heartbreak of finding out that becoming an astronaut for NASA wouldn't actually make me a Jedi Knight. <laughs> 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 so when Raiders came out, it was a little more grounded in reality. And I said, yes. oh, well, maybe this is something I could actually do. <laughs> so it was that. Um, so Raiders of the Lost Ark from 1981. Steven Spielberg. I, I should qualify this by saying it was it was that rare moment in time when, you know how when you're a kid you go to movies and you actually think those movies are real? Yes. And uh, for me, Star Wars was sort of the last movie I saw that I thought could really happen. Like, yes. I was watching that movie and thinking, how'd they get these shots? Did they actually, like, launch a, you know, a rocket up into orbit and, like, actually shoot stuff <laughs> on, the, on the edge of the Earth? Because how else could they film that? And Tuscany, <laughs> and that was kind of like right that that I left that like elementary school in the middle school stage, and I was beginning to become aware that you know these were actors, these weren't real people, these weren't actual stories, and I was being to see newscasts about making of stuff, mm -hmm. um, and and I recall. Yeah, just being really excited. Okay, so I get it. This is these are now movies, but I'm excited for these movies. So this is the first time I remember actually following a filmmaker who was George Lucas. Mm -hmm. First time ever I remember thinking, oh well, he's the guy who actually was behind this. And and there was a small news broadcast just the day before Raiders was released, and they were talking to George Lucas. And they were showing like scenes, and it was like biplanes that looked like World War II, and it wasn't anything I recognized. And they're like. The newscasters are 
are saying, hey, well, this this is totally unlike Star Wars, and and what is this going to be like? And well, we want this throwback to the 1940s serials, which at the time I had seen those years earlier on reruns, like a, the, the Flash Lone Ranger, Gordon, the Lone yeah. Ranger, the uh, even the old Superman serials, but I and the Shadow, the Shadow was was something that was more similar to. So I remember seeing some of those and. And thinking, oh, wow, but, but the scenes that they were showing and the poster for the movie wasn't, if you saw the original Raiders of the Lost Ark poster, it's, it's very much just um, more like archaeological, and it's Indiana Jones, it's this guy in a fedora with, with a suit, and a, he's holding a backpack, but that's, that's it. There's not like a lot of action shots on Destruzen? it. Destruzen? No, that was, oh. it was not the Struzen poster. It was um, Amsel. Pre-Struzen. Amsel. Okay, Amsel, yeah. Guy. He did... We did that one. It's a very nice understated poster, but it, it totally leaves it in mystery. You kind of look at it and you just say, okay, it's from the creators of Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but this doesn't look anything like Star Wars or yeah. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. What is this? And it's the first time I ever went to go see a movie based purely on the fact of the people who made it. I had no idea what the film was about. I had no idea what an arc was. Uh, as far as I was concerned, the Raiders were that football team from Oakland um, <laughs> across the bay. I, I just rode my bike to the Palo Alto Square at opening day, absolutely not knowing a thing about what the movie was about. And you were the perfect age to see this movie. Yeah, right about 13, 14. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It doesn't get any better than that. The perfect age to see Star Wars around age 10. And this comes along, it's more violent. It's more bloody. It's oh, more of an anti-hero. So awesome! This you know? was PG. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, you have. I walked out of that inning going, oh, "I saw people's heads explode, and faces <laughs> melt, <laughs> corpses everywhere, and snakes in corpses." It was so and cool. People getting hit with like, darts and spears and, and plane propellers and splats. Yeah. <laughs> Just... yeah. <laughs> oh, it was amazing it was absolutely awesome yeah and you were bent that way you you had loved you know the scooby-doos and the, the scarier stuff and the, oh the i love the exploring and, i mean i just you know. again i had my heart broken when i figured out archaeology wasn't quite as exciting <laughs> as <laughs> oh maybe i can be an archaeologist that would be really awesome <laughs> like well the classroom scene was accurate i did become a college professor though yeah that's true hey hey you're, you're halfway there <laughs> and um no, it was a holy cow! It, trying to remember what it was like being in the theater that that I was just completely blown away. Um, I, I I was really expecting, you know, when you see World War II, you think, oh, period piece drama. You know, yeah. it'll be slow, it'll be interesting, but I'll be fighting to stay awake through this. Was really what I was thinking going into it, <laughs> and I just went. That was nothing like any of the other World War II movies I've ever seen. <laughs> and that's a signature element here is it's two hours of nonstop. And the first ten minutes have more action in it than some movies <laughs> have completely. Oh, uh, yeah, that's, opener, that's a better, the, the opener is better than most movies' finales. Yeah. It is absolutely breathtaking. And, and, and it's great because like a serial, which which might be 15 minutes long, you know, and but still be packed with action. This is that, the two-hour version, the big-budget version. Yes. Completely packed. 
It was complete. They said in interviews that they had exactly 12, like, cliffhanger moments. Like, if mm-hmm. you broke it up into a, a serial like they did in 12 episodes, that Raiders actually breaks into 12 separate little episodes. And I've kind of always wanted yeah, to go through and that. do a deconstruction of it and see exactly where those moments are. Like, yeah. if you were to take Raiders of the Lost Ark and break it up into chapters, serialized chapters, and go back and see one chapter a week, how would you edit that? Indy's life is threatened in almost every scene. <laughs> This film. He really is. He can't even eat a date without it becoming a life-threatening emergency. Yeah. And something I noticed when watching it is is how the formula works. To have something with... To have this guy who's like the ideal hero, who's this this fantasy, this, you know, um, heroic courage personified in this figure, um, to make it where he's can't catch a break... And he's always facing challenging stuff, and he's just getting defeated all the time, but gets right up. That makes him relatable. That makes, it turns the ideal into something human and relatable. Well, you know, I actually didn't think he was an ideal hero. Matter of fact, for the first third of the movie, I was was wondering whether he was kind of supposed to be a bad guy. I mean, definitely a darker, darker shade. He's like a grave robber. Well, as, as Spielberg, I mean, what they, they said, I didn't realize this, that Spielberg wanted to make a more Humphrey Bogart, you know, on the treasure of the Sierra Madre, alcoholic, um, dark. And there, there are things, like, just right in the opening where he's facing off against, you know, the guy who turns traitor on him with a gun. And, you know, it's like, wow, the hero looks more like a villain than the villain does. You know, the villain's this clean-cut guy in a suit and a... Yeah, that's a good way a, of putting it. And, uh... And a hat, and, and Indy's just yeah. this mess, you know, and he's, and he's dark, and, he's, and he doesn't care if he puts his, his uh, cohorts in danger with him, with the uh, tarantulas, and, you know, and he's, he's just after the idol. You know, it's, it's not so much that he's good as, as he's, he's less motivated by personal greed than the other guys he's with. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you need a gray hero here because what he's up against is so he's up against Nazis for crying out loud and, and communists. You need the the gray hero. Well, and then you've you've got the scene People where, betraying him at every where he's turn. like, you know what a cautious fellow I am and he's got the gun and and yeah, I've been reading Batman and to me guns were were normally bad, you know, mm-hmm. bad guys use guns for the most part. For the most part. Um, and when he goes to uh, Nepal, and you've got that amazing entrance with Marion. You know, what is, what's the big romantic beginning? Bam! Right across the kisser. You know, just what you did to me. Like, like holy cow. I, what, what the heck? <laughs> what did this guy do to her? What was, you know, you've got this... Something about that Raiders shares with Star Wars... And mm-hmm. that, that, that ultimately you saw actually worked also for Lord of the Rings in that... And that George Lucas created a whole history for these people. He didn't like yeah. just tell this story. He actually created this whole history and this whole timeline, and then just took a piece of it. So, I was like, a child, I was in love. You knew what you were doing. <laughs> and and you could tell Raiders was supposed to be like the the final adventure of this guy. This wasn't like this young kid off the block like getting started. This was. This was someone who's, you know, it's not the years, it's the mileage. He's, he's put a few rounds on and, and, and left some, some obviously, some, some hurt, hurt, hurtful feelings in the past. But he... Uh, yeah, there's some wonderful exposition, and it never slows down the movie, and it's always interesting. 
No, and it's... Him and Raven would work together. He was kind of this father figure, but then they had this falling out, and you're figuring out why as we go along. Yeah, that's actually still an interesting story. I kind of wonder what, what, what happened back then, what his relationship with Abner was, why Abner, you know, eventually died in Nepal, and how did... It, that that's a pretty awful yeah, situation, right? She's and... Marion's been stuck in the middle of the Himalayas for who knows how many years, and you know had her heart decimated by Indy. That's yeah, what that relationship was. And yet they still obviously feel have strong feelings for each other. Yeah, and he's like, look, I'm not. I did what I did. You don't have to be happy about it, but I can help you out now. There's three grand in it for you. <laughs> and Marion's just like two when you get there. Well, that'll get me back, but not in style. Yeah, you know, it's just <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I just, I, you know, after she drinks some guy under the table, and I'm like, these are the heroes of the film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have to imagine, if, if I'm time-traveling back to 1981, and I'm a studio exec, you're like, okay, we want this movie to appeal to broad audiences, including kids. It's going to be PG. And this has to be one of the first times we're seeing heroes with guns and, and drinking. And, well, and I think that probably was more common so. back in the 30s and 40s with the silent serials. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. But then to bring it yeah. into an 80s is... Well, and I think keep in mind in the 70s, audiences that had had really great anti-heroes, you know, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, you know, you're like, yeah. I mean, we didn't even have heroes in the 70s. Yeah. We had The Godfather, you know, it was, it was like movies in the 70s were, until Star Wars came along, were pretty grim. Most of yeah, the, the, like, this film had... And that's going back kids, to what, what Vietnam had sort straddled. of done the American consciousness. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to bring that whole thing into, but... But really, George Lucas and Spielberg, Steven Spielberg brought fun and innocence back to filmmaking. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. In this great good versus evil tale. Yeah. So anyways... Um, but, yeah, but yes, as far as has anyone made like a family-friendly film that involved a hero with this many shades of gray before? Nope, not that I ever yeah. saw. And Spielberg, he, he straddles the line and he pushes the envelope just enough and where it's exciting and it's a little naughty and it's a little dangerous and that adds to the thrill and, you know, delivers in that way. Now, anyways, so you're from Northern California, mm-hmm. right? And um, from San Jose. So you have an interesting experience with this film playing in San Jose. What is that? There's something very unique about this film. It played year-round. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> You're looking at it like, what are you talking about? But yeah, this is one of the first films oh. to play year-round in a theater in San Jose. Yes, for those of you, you who were... haven't been born, <laughs> who were, who were <laughs> born, born in the last 20 or 30 years, you probably don't remember a time when you were not able to just go to Ralph's and pick up the DVD in two months of the movie you saw in the theater and play it whenever you want or download it on YouTube (laughs) or watch it on video on demand somewhere. No, back in the old days, basically you got to see it in the theaters and then you got to wait 10 years and then breathlessly see it, it, well, like five years, five or six years. And then eventually it would get a broadcast premiere on network TV and then maybe a year later. So you would get to see it once a year at best from that point on. So people went to go see movies multiple times in the theater, a lot. And Raiders played in um, 
Now, granted, this was this was pretty uncalled for. I mean, it you could films would wouldn't be unheard of for movies to play three or four months in a theater back then, but uh, six months was probably the absolute longest. Um, Raiders played at a theater in San Jose for one full year. As a matter of fact, they re-released Raiders a year later, and it was still playing yeah. <laughs> in our local theater. The one-year anniversary. So there were only two theaters in the country that that happened at. Um, the Century 25 in San Jose. It went, kind of went from Century 21, which was their big screen, down to the, the 23 and then the 25, which was their smaller screen. But it stayed. Yeah, it stayed at the Century. And I think, wasn't it the Alamo Draft House where all those guys from Any Cool News hang out? In Texas? In Texas was the other one. Yeah, I that think it, so. That it played at for a full year. So on the one-year anniversary of Raiders' release, playing for a full year at the theater, Frank Marshall came and gave a, a presentation of the film. And, you know, Frank Marshall played the pilot on the Nazi wing, and it was great that I got yeah, to, to meet him, and he signed my Raiders of the Lost Art collectible album, and... And I found out, I said, what's a producer do? <laughs> what do you do? Well, we're actually involved with the money part of it. We, put, we, we actually put all the pieces together and put the talent together. And, and that's where I first learned about what a producer did. I mean, I knew directors. Like, they kind of like pointed the camera and told people what to do on the set. But producers are really the people who put all the creative t- talent together to make the film. Yeah. I mean, they can have different roles varying, but that was my first... Yeah, from uh, location scouting to budgeting to where you shoot it. You and, know, yeah. g- getting the money to make the film with. Yeah. Um, the distribution, the, finding the distributor. But they are... And especially, and I was trying out later in animation, they really are uh, much more creative, creatively involved. Yeah. Uh, Don Hahn, you know, is, is as much responsible for Beauty and the Beast as the directors are. I think anybody would say that. So how many times do you think you saw it in that year? In the initial run? Would anybody say that? No, I mean, he's not the director, but anyway. But, you know, he had the initial vision of what he wanted the movie to be and the producer and animated films work. Anyway, probably more so than they do with live action. How many times did I see it in that first year? Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to Prox. Thirties. Not as much as Superman. Superman was my number one, saw that in theaters 16 or 17 times. I think Raiders was at least 12 or 13 times, though. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. But then I saw it every single time they put it on broadcast TV, so that number bumped up to 21 at least by the time I was out of high school. (laughs) Now, we we talk about hungry filmmakers sometime, and this is, like, this is a great part in Spielberg's career and Lucas's career, because Spielberg had just done a flop, 1941, which as great as it was, was a box office kind of flop, and he really needed another hit on his hands. And he had worked with, with Lucas. Wait, and can I back up just a second? Yeah. I just want to say, the, the meeting with Frank Marshall at the Raiders screening yes. was momentous for another reason. Okay. Do you know why? Do you remember? Because of the Back to the Future screening? Yep. Where you met Spielberg? Yeah, I, I bumped. I was in the bathroom after a, a preview screening of Back to the Future Three and recognized him. Nobody recognizes Frank Marshall, <laughs> but the fact that I recognized he was so impressed that somebody recognized him. He was like, "Hey, who are you? Oh, do I really like the movie?" And I'm like, "Oh, can I introduce you to my friends here? This is you know Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis." <gasps> <laughs> 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 
I, I can die now. That's it. I yeah. just, I'm, <laughs> I'm good. You can, yeah. <laughs> that was, that was amazing. Anyway. But, World's yeah. greatest filmmaker. And you got to meet him. Yeah. That's great. Living Two legends. Of Two of them. Two Zemeckis of them. and Spielberg. And Spielberg. Together again. Together again. <laughs> uh, but anyways. Anyways. Um, in the years leading up to uh, Raiders, <laughs> Spielberg wasn't quite a sure thing, right? Even though he had two enormous hits under his belt, Jaws and Close Encounters, mm-hmm. um, he wasn't trustworthy enough. We're like, we're just going to give you all the money and do whatever you want. And I think, here, here's the point in all of this, it's getting very convoluted. <laughs> is that Spielberg was still hungry enough in his career and to make something kind of on the cheap, staying close to the uh, the, the timeline and the deadlines. Well, keep it, well, like I said, there was a little bit, he had just done 1941 was his previous film, which was huge, big budget, comedy, blockbuster flop. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, and it really went over budget and had huge special effects. I just said that. And we are and it's a great film. It's I I again. I was the right age to watch that movie. I laughed my head off. I was falling in the aisle, screaming. I mean, the the inner thirteen year old was perfect to see that movie with. But unfortunately, at the time, it was you know you know it wasn't you know so so I think they you know they were a little cautious with you know how much money they were going to entrust him with for the next one, which is why Raiders had such a tight budget and such a tight schedule. As you read, like, George Lucas, despite doing Star Wars, which he had taken to every studio in town and they had turned it down, he took Raiders to every studio in town and they all turned it down, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, but I made Star Wars. Yeah, but this isn't Star Wars, George. This is, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> and it would turn out to be Lucas's last masterpiece. Now, now. <laughs> <laughs> As it were. Jedi was still coming. That's There's, there's <laughs> half of... Anyway, um... So it, um, it, it was, you know, it was one of those things where in, in hindsight, they, they said we had this tight budget on it. We had a t- fixed schedule. We had to get it shot in a certain number of days. The insurance company, the studio literally had a clause in the contract. If Spielberg went one day over a schedule, they would take the film over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was. So they had to keep ahead of schedules, which was possible. And it and it completely worked for the movie. And like you said, that quote we just saw, and I know I'd, I'd read that somewhere before, where Steven Spielberg said, "I think if we had had like all big money and big budget and time to do all this stuff, it, the movie wouldn't have been as good. It would have turned into this pretentious sort of filmmaking experience. But because we had to get stuff done in four shots, we had to shoot from the hip, we had to, you know, make stuff up. You know, we couldn't afford a delay in production. Harrison Ford's sick one day, and he's like." All right, I can't fight this this huge sword whip versus versus gun f- sword fight. Let's let's just have Indy shoot this guy. Yeah. <laughs> Literally <laughs> and figuratively, <laughs> shoots from the hip. Shoot from the hip. This sort of thing. And I've always thought that e- even in the subsequent uh, Indiana Jones films, where they they use more special effects and things, I said, you know, I I was just fine with with the stunt work. You know, with the fisticuffs and the stunt work, and it looks great, and it didn't need to. Uh, it's one of those things where bigger has not necessarily always been better for Indiana Jones. 
you know, nu nuking the fridge or, or leaping out of the airplane in the raft is is not necessarily anywhere near as thrilling as the moment when he's got his head on the bar and the fire is coming towards him. He just whispers to Marianne, "Whiskey." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I mean, it's it's um, it's really really personal. I think that's Readers of the Lost Ark is a much more personal film because it it stays smaller in scope most of the time. And what we want to look at is Raiders cracks the code and how they did that. And Raiders has this great sense of humor that is completely original and completely necessary to the story because it complements that kind of storytelling with running from boulders and, and being way outnumbered mm. in these sword fights and sword fights and, you know, being oh. on planes and horses and stuff. Yeah, you know, and it's not to say that those other sequences in the other indie films aren't spectacular and fun in their own way, mm -hmm. but it's a different way than Raiders was. I think I'll, I'll just say that. I think the other indie films feel different than, than Raiders did. Yeah. Yeah, so I'd say the... Temple of Doom is a lot of fun. It's hysterical, a lot of fun. I know a lot of people, it's kind of like their least favorite of the Indiana Jones films. But it's not, for me, I totally was on the edge of my seat and loved, like, Dr. every Jones, second. Dr. Jones! I loved every second of the second half of that movie. It just rockets. I was shaking in my seat. I had such a great time. Yes, it was a different movie than Raiders. Oh, yeah, I love how dark you're pulling the heart out of the chest and... <laughs> Oh, that whole the fight, the, fight. The mine shaft, and yeah. He's, again, he's so outnumbered every step of the way. Yeah. And yet, you make it work. By the end of that, that whole sequence in the, in the mine and the temple, I could buy that that happened. I could buy that one man could go through all that. He didn't actually take everyone down, but he managed to escape, barely. Yeah, it's a guy, you're, you're always rooting for him. He's always sympathetic. Yeah. But not overly sympathetic to where if Marion punches him, you're like, oh, she had good reason. He had it coming, you know. By the way, like The Goonies, I feel like there are some movies that are best watched in the audience of a bunch of 12 to 13-year-olds or junior hires, and Temple of Doom is one of them. Okay. You will, I, I, I went to a screening of well, that at, at a high school during one of their back-to-school um, movie nights. And, of course, who shows up at back-to-school movie night at Agura? All the All the incoming freshmen. Yeah. So you're, you're pretty much getting like a bunch of middle schoolers. And that movie was awesome with that audience. They were so into it. They were cheering. They were yelling. It was, it was participation. I just went, wow, this film's really, really fun. Yeah, and it kept that edge to it, you know, keeping the monkey brains and... Chilled monkey brains. And all the... Um, what, what was the... Okay, if you have snakes in the first one, what was in the second one? Oh, yeah, all was the, the creature. Yeah, all the, the creepy, crawly bugs that were crawling through Kate Capshaw's. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. The, the bug handle scene. That was. <laughs> <laughs> you always have to have your creepy crawlers in, in these types of films. What was it in um, Last Crusade? It was down in the catacombs. Rats. Rats, yeah. Uh, the great rats. rats scene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the fire ants and Crystal Skull. Yeah, it was there. You're right. So anyways. Although I was waiting for that, that moment in Crystal Skull to watch all the fire ants go in the Russian, like crawl in his mouth and like eat him alive from the inside. I didn't get that. He just <laughs> pulled him underground. <laughs> Need more edge. More edge. <laughs> okay, so let's go through Sorry, the film. That probably would have been too edgy. Although he did blow up heads and melt Nazis in the first one. I don't think I was asking for so much. <laughs> That's good. All right, I have some notes here. 
that I made during the film. Um, okay. One, we start off right at the bat with jo the John Williams score. That whole opening 15 minutes is accompanied with music, and it's wonderful. Completely plays perfectly, amps it up. Really mysterious and slow, though. You know that? Like, slow, like, what's going on here? Who are these people? Why are we here? Everyone's in shadows. Yeah. The music's just, you know. And just really adds a lot of personality, I think, to the film. And then we have, you know, there's a lot of signature Spielberg moves in this film that he kind of becomes known for. It's, he kind of has the slow reveal of the hero, where we don't see his face, um, but we see him kind of walking out of the shadow, and we see him walking, and then we see him, him whipping, and then we see his face. So that's kind of cool. The big trumpet blare. The tuba, like trombone. Like, <laughs> the reveal of a different kind of hero in the anti-hero. Um, um, okay, I guess I'll go. Uh, let's, let's see. What, what else about that, about that opening scene? Um... Well, okay. I like, the deep, I like the deep focus composition when he's piecing the map together and you see Sapito in the background. Yeah, okay. In, in that opening scene, um, it shows how intelligent Indy is as he's sneaking through and he sees the sunlight and he just puts his hand there quickly and then the darts fly out and you're really seeing... Or the spikes with the... Uh... <laughs> It's it's the great combination of it. He's not just the guy, you know, just the brawn with the fist who can fight and stuff. But this guy's really using his brain the whole time and really figuring it out. Oh, and he's got the sack and he fills it with dirt and you know, he approximates the weight of the skull so he can replace it and he kind of foresees that going in. Yeah. I mean, what, what would it be like in the darkened theater to see all those spiders on his back the first time? I mean, that... Ah! <laughs> it's just... Everybody in the squealing audience squealing in the theater. Just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what everybody hates. It's like know? the one, the the two, the two or three tarantulas on his back were bad enough, and then they moved some around. Just completely covered. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's how. That's that's why they they got him for the Spider-Man movies. He was so good in that scene. He was so good. Yeah. <laughs> And I feel like the ongoing gag in the movie is that he can't catch a break. And he even says that to Miriam at one point. We never seem to get a break, do we? Or Miriam says that to her. Miriam says that to him, yeah. We never seem to get a break, do we? As he's asleep. You know. Best, most romantic scene ever <laughs> filmed in history. <laughs> within that, within that the, there is a very self-aware sense of humor in this film that I think really works for it. They know that he can't catch a break and that he himself is almost unnecessary to the plot. And they really hone on his relationship with Mirian and, you know, he keeps saving her and that really becomes a good driving force for the third act is their relationship. Well, it's not... Because they probably would have killed her in that opening scene. Oh, you, you were talking about the argument that Raiders of the Lost Ark didn't need to happen at all. Indiana Jones didn't need to go. It would have, the movie would have played out exactly the same. And no, it wouldn't have. Marion probably would have been tortured and killed to get the uh, to get the uh, yeah. the medallion at the beginning of the film. 
if Indy hadn't been there to save her. So yes, it is good that he went on the quest to save the Ark because he reconnected with Marion, yeah. and they they you know kind of resolved that ten year long bitter. Uh, and it's implied that when all the Nazis die from the Ark at the end, and Indy survives. He's the one who, you know, calls the government or calls whatever and gets him over there. And Right, the Ark would have been stuck in that. Off. I think yeah. the Nazis would have gotten the Ark anyway. They just said, what happened to all the guys we had stationed on that island? I haven't heard from them in a while. So, yeah, so, so. <laughs> Indy is completely vital and important to this plot. Yes. Dang it. He may not actually do much to get the Ark by the end of the movie. That's kind of, you know, God sort of takes care of everything. But... Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, this movie, it really appealed to the Christian Jewish demographic, which is a big part of America. So I think that was part of its success. I never went to Sunday school. And I will say this is probably, uh, outside of Linus's soliloquy in, Sunday school. In, in Charlie Brown Christmas, <laughs> this really was my first experience with the Old Testament Bible. Oh, no, wait. I saw the Ten Commandments. Yeah. With Charlton Heston. So I was able to kind of put that together. The Ten Commandments were put in the Ark since I had seen the Ten Commandments. I, oh, those tablets from that movie were put into this movie. And I thought, is this a sequel? Wait. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's great that that they can use, you know, something supernatural from the Old Testament. And it's it's completely consistent. It doesn't step on any toes and everyone's okay with it. And it completely works. And... Well, and historically, I was a little, I and I actually ended up being kind of interested in knowing about Hitler's obsession with the supernatural from reading comic books, because back in the Justice Society days, they actually had that that element, the comics, that Hitler was was after the Spear of Destiny, which he could use to control the specter, and so I sort of knew that aspect of World War II history. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know... Director Joe Johnson was very influenced by this film when he made Captain America. Well, he worked on this film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. He was in what, art direction? He was the art director. He was the art director. For Raiders. Yeah. And there's even, you know, there's a few there, references to it in there are a couple Captain of America. and little asides to it in Captain America, which are really cool. Yeah, I mean, the Red Skull is definitely this Hitler figure who's... And trying to get all these artifacts and, you know, religious lives, things. and wasting their time digging in the desert. <laughs> and they could be getting the cosmic cube. <laughs> the Tesseract. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Digging for trinkets in the desert. And now that Disney owns Lucasfilm, you know, I doubt Lucasfilm's going to be upset that <laughs> of that reference. <laughs> The well, next were, movie, Indiana Jones and the Tesseract. Well, they were both Paramount films, yeah, Raiders Peter's and Paramount. Captain America. Yes, that's true. I have a little story about that. Oh. Can I share a story? It's not as good Please. as your story. Oh, I want to hear this. But I was working at Paramount Studios on Community for three days. I hate you for that, by the way. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> sure. So jealous. That would have been so awesome. It was the in- Inspectacon episode. Yes. The Inspector Space Time uh, convention, space time. but and um, on the third day, Spielberg presented a 30th anniversary screening of Raiders at the Paramount screening room. And during my lunch break, I went over there and they had some posters set up and they had like baskets of, of rubber snakes there, <laughs> you know, kind of stuff. I mean, no one was there yet, but but I was I was near it. <laughs> nice. I'm like, cool. This is yeah. And then I did see it in IMAX, um, which was cool. 
And but interesting fact, earlier that day, they released the um, the trailer for Lincoln. There was this big build up. We're gonna do the world, you know, because they did like a little, you know, Yahoo chat kind of thing with Spielberg and Joseph Gordon-Levitt about it. So I watched that on my phone that day, and then during lunch I went over. I'm like, I know where Spielberg is today. He right now he's at DreamWorks doing the live Yahoo chat, and then later today he's gonna go over to Paramount. Isn't it great that stuff's so close to each other? So, it, it's not a great story. But. I, actually, I actually went over to his the Amblin offices at Universal when I was a tour guide there. They were really nice. They had a, oh, yeah, yeah? Spielberg had a, a framed... Um, uh, Kurosawa had sent Spielberg a letter telling him how much he loved Color Purple. Oh, wow. And Spielberg, and he had handwritten it. It was all in Japanese. And Spielberg had the letter, and the letter, there was a translation. So he had both the letter and the translation framed in his office because he was so honored to have someone of, you know, Kurosawa's, like, eminence to, like, write him and tell him how much he loved Color Purple. And, and I thought that was, I thought it was really neat that even Spielberg has heroes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, I mean, and Lucas as well is very influenced by Kurosawa's work. Hidden Fortress. Hidden Fortress. Star Wars is practically... Definitely, definitely, um, ins, there's <laughs> influence. influence and inspired. <laughs> but but it's a good, it's a great reworking. It really is. What's the idea that the story is told by the two kind of lowest characters of C3 and R2-D2. That's the entry point. Yeah. And Hidden Fortress is the same. No, Hidden Fortress is a great movie and you should see it if you haven't seen it. I have seen it, yeah. Yeah. So that. It's Rashomon. solid. Have you seen Ran? No, I haven't seen Ran. Ran is beautiful. Or Seven Samurai. And it's so gorgeous. And it's so, and it's amazing to think that he was practically blind when he shot it. Wow. Because it's really <laughs> a beautiful, beautiful film. Uh, Impressive. So yeah. then... Yeah, we've all... Every, every filmmaker is, has, has been inspired by, quote-unquote, Kurosawa at some point. Hey, you know. <laughs> whether, it's, whether it's Bruce Tim doing Point of View, which is Rashomon and... Still from the best. That's my philosophy. So then Indy gets back to the college. But look at it this way. Even, even Kurosawa himself, what, what, did, what, what, did, what is Throne of Blood? It's Macbeth reworked in, you know, feudal Japan. Yeah, I didn't... So there you Think go. Think of that. Yeah, he's he's rush. I mean, Kurosawa himself was inspired by Shakespeare, the Magnificent Seven, <laughs> which turned That's into Battle Beyond, once. <laughs> Battle Beyond the Stars. Oh yeah, yeah. no, from Seven Samurai. Sem- Seven Samurai. I think. Yeah, it was, it was Silverado. It was, no, it was, no, it was um, Magnificent Seven. Magnificent Seven, and it was again remade oh, yeah, as a. I get those confused. as a sci-fi movie. Battle Beyond the Stars, which starred Robert Vaughn, who would later go on to be in Superman 3. Battle That's Beyond right. the Stars is, 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 is a lower-budget film. It's a B-movie, to be sure, but it's, it's a fun one. Yeah. It's, I never saw Young Guns 2. I only saw the first one. I like the second one. Is it? I actually thought the second one was slightly better. was a little more intense. Okay, so Indy gets back to Princeton, where he's teaching college. There's the gray girl with the, the love you written on her eyelids. And then he has a meeting with uh, people. Something else Indian. Huh? Um, oh, yes, the government people. 
Did you guys ever do your ever go to Sunday school? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then he flies. You have the beautiful sh- map in the background and the plane flying and the gorgeous shot of the Golden Gate Bridge as Indies flying from California bum, to bum. Nepal. Being followed. Yes. Always being followed. And I have to imagine that whole map thing is a throwback to yes. how they, I mean, we've mentioned Casablanca as an influence. And, that, and I don't know why it was such a big deal, but every time in the movie theater, people cheer at that scene. It's like, yeah! It's Because cool. it's, just... it's, it's, it's so representative. It's the hero's journey. It's like he's finally going on the journey. Even though technically we began the journey in the first ten minutes, mm-hmm. when we see him at... Princeton, that establishes this is his home, this is his base, this is what he's returning to. So even though it's a little scene, we're going to spend the rest of the movie in the unknown and eventually come back to here. Well, and even that opening scene really sets up the relationship between him and Belloc. It sets up who he is as a oh, character, like, what he does. Once again, there is nothing you can get <laughs> that I can't take that, away. There is nothing you cannot possess that I cannot take away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> what was briefly yours is now mine. <laughs> Son of a bitch. You're like, this movie has cussing in it. Yay. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> Son of a bitch. I'm going to start saying Son of a Bitch under my breath. <laughs> I, I'm trying to think because there actually was an article about what they could get away with language wise and keep the PG <laughs> Kent you got a C on your math test son of a bitch <laughs> uh, what man is anything um, yeah and um, another signature move when you know when Indy first gets to you know Miriam's place you see that beautiful silhouette of him and you see the hat the brim of the hat and you know what that is. And then later on, there's the, during that. Oh, wait, yeah, that awesome introduction to Marion, though. Oh yeah. That what has ever a movie heroine ever been introduced to an audience? As cool as that. No, that's that's <laughs> one of the best. Drinking a guy under the table. I mean, an absolute. And it looks like she's. It gonna foreshadows. Lose her it shows her personality. It says something about her. She just kind of shakes it off and just. And, then, and people don't notice this, but after that whole scene with the table and everything and everyone's gone and gone away, she's cleaning up the table and she just grabs the last shot and just goes... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then when the barrel gets down. shot with the bullet, oh, yeah, she, she takes the swig of that real <laughs> <laughs> And then it's just Indiana Jones. Somehow, I always knew you'd come walking back through my door. Something made it inevitable. Damn! <laughs> and we're like, yeah, he had it coming. I wanted to hate you in the last ten years. <laughs> we're like, I'm okay with that, based on the little backstory I know. It's a great scene, and then the silhouettes used when, you know, you mentioned he's he's on the bar and then the the fire is going towards him, knocks the guy out, and then Indy's about to get shot, and he grabs the guy's gun and shoots the guy, and you just see. Behind Indy, the silhouette of the guy right, the fall of the down. Guy following down. Oh, so good. And it wasn't because they couldn't show the guy getting shot, because they show a lot of people getting shot. But, but it's it just looked, damn it cool. It's so it's yeah, just so cool. It's so much more filmic and cinematic and just yeah. No, there's a lot of I still were just and I think the hat and the shadow is, cool is a reference probably to the shadow from the old nineteen thirties oh. series. 
tip tip of the hat to that. What was what was that so... that show about? Was he a detective? Was it he was he a oh, dead guy? Oh, the shadow. Shadow. Yeah. What was? The... I'm not familiar. He's actually well. He's pretty mysterious, but he's someone who who obtained some training in a mystic ring from in Nanda Parabat, per- like a like a Tibetan monastery, and he's sort of. You know, he was more of a radio show person at first, but he always laughed from the shadows and came out and and dealt justice with twin guns and would move as if he were a whiff of smoke. But he was Lamont Cranston, another rich guy. There was a lot of Batman shadow parallels, but the shadow would Mm. use guns. Okay. Um, Yeah, I can definitely see that as an influence. it, It was actually sort of... I never quite knew whether he actually had powers or just was really good at 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 sneaking around and and appearing out of nowhere. <laughs> kind of like uh, Will Eisner's The Spirit from the same from the same generation. Yeah. yeah. And then when the 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 tavern burns down, there's that gray line. Well, Jones, haven't forgotten how to show a lady a good time. <laughs> <laughs> You got more than you bargained for. You have a partner now. I'm coming with you. That'll get me back, but not in style. (laughs) Till I get my money. You have a partner. So many great moments. Okay. And he even sets up how the Nazis get get their hands literally on the the headpiece. (laughs) No. One of my all-time favorite moments is this, okay? Uh, Indy thinks Miriam has died. So he's talking to Belloc in the restaurant. Indy has that great line about, Oh, heaven, let's go there together. You want to talk to God? I got nothing better to do. Let's go see him together. Yeah. And, and he's drunk wonderful and he's stage. despondent. He feels like he got Marion killed. It's... And he's on. He leans back, puts his hand to his holster, starts taking out the gun, starts standing up. There's about 20 men around him with guns pointed at his face. <laughs> the, it falls completely silent for that moment. And then all the kids run good. through the room and bear hug Indy. And then he's like, better than the U.S. Marines. Better than U.S. States Marines, no? (laughs) Yeah. Next time, it will take more than children to save you, Indiana Jones. Because he's such a guy that, like, as smart as he is, he just acts from his heart and acts from his gut. He does. And he's just not afraid and to at least scare this guy or pull out a gun and, you know... Well, he really, way he really hit him where it hurt, though. Keep in mind, it was just a few minutes earlier, and he says it would only take a little nudge to push you out of the light. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> where else will I find an adversary so close to my own level? Try your local sewer. <laughs> 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 it's like, now you're getting nasty. We are much alike, you and I. Now you're getting nasty. <laughs> I mean, and it's true. And the thing that hurts about that is that it very yeah. much is true. Indiana Jones does use pretty mm. unorthodox methods to, and, to, and we have to become the obtainer of rare antiquities. <laughs> <laughs> That's me, wee lad Gimli. <laughs> He's in this film. Never knew that, did you? No, yeah. I never knew that. That's my wee lad. Yeah. Good. Small in chance of success. Sudden death. What are we waiting for? Yeah. <laughs> what are we waiting for? 
Yeah, and that... Enjoy him. Yeah, that, that whole scene is, is great with her, them running around her in the basket and just the right amount of... It's <laughs> a frying pan. Of action. Of I want to see that scene with uh, with Sala in the frying pan beating up uh, the guard. Yeah. That was like, wow, why was that cut? <laughs> yeah, what was that? And like we said, they, they had enough guys covered in turbans. Where it's like, I died three times in this scene. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many, like, Indy will duck and the guy will hit someone else with a sword or they try to stab him and he dodges it. Yeah, I always, always like to stab the other guy and get the fruit kebab on the back end of the sword with it when he pulls it back out. Or just fall yeah, back. I mean, these are, these henchmen are the stormtroopers, you know. It's kind of funny. It's it's close. It's The gags in it are just quick enough. You kind of go, what was that? And then yeah. you're on to the next thing, you know. It's, yeah, it moves so well. Um, and then you get then you get the reversal, right? Indy finds the the well of souls location, gets gets the ark, and then it's why Indiana Jones? Whatever are you doing in such a nasty place? <laughs> Why don't you come down here and I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then Indy finds where Miriam is in the tents. Oh, before that, yes, and on gags her, and then has to put the gag back in. <laughs> Like oh they're gonna you know start looking for us right away if I do this and again sorry you've never seen that you I've seen so many movies where the hero rescues the damsel in distress and not this time around no nope, no nope, I, I oh it's great you're alive but wait we, we gotta leave you what, yeah what, are you crazy <laughs> like gags her again <laughs> the mission is is put out as the more important thing at that moment. Yes. But not above, like, ribbing her a bit later on. Where'd you get this? From him? I was trying to escape. How hard were you trying? <laughs> How hard were you trying? <laughs> Can we give some kudos to Lawrence Kasdan on the screenplay? Kudos very much. That was... I, he, kudos to Lawrence. He was not afraid to write edgy dialogue and, yeah. and make these two characters, like, literally rip rip into each other. Yeah. <laughs> Marion, she puts on the dress, then they, she tries to escape Belloc by drinking him under the table. And we get a little sympathy for Belloc here. We kinda, he kind of keeps us guessing a little bit. And it's not too long before we start hating him again. When, when Indy's, you know, in the hole and, you know, Marion gets thrown down. You know, I, but he sincerely doesn't want to hurt Marion. No, he know, really, he really doesn't. doesn't. And, yeah, he... and the, um, shoot, who's the Asian guy? But just like Indy, it's like Indiana Jones was willing to sacrifice Marion for the good of the mission. Well, at the end of the day, Belloc's willing to sacrifice her to get his hands on the Ark. Yeah. I mean, is he really that much darker than... Yes, he is. I mean, yes, he he would yeah. throw in with... But there are like three sets of villains, you know, in this. And Belloc is a little bit of a gray. Now, on the flip side, while Belloc is interested in history and itself he is he is in it for the money yeah whereas you know to to resell to the highest bidder whereas whereas indy really is in it to to put it in a museum to to have people learn from it for decades yeah. to come to so so there is a motivational difference there even subtly the like in the first 10 minutes if he really wanted to kill indy he could have but when all the guys start bowing and indy starts mm -hmm. running away he's mm -hmm. like 
get him. Yeah, he goes, you know. Um, you know, kind of giving him a head start. So he doesn't really want to kill Indy, otherwise he probably would have done it. Oh, right I think now. he likes having an adversary. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's, he's the, the Joker to Indy's Batman. Yeah. As it were. I would have liked to have seen more of their earlier battles if they went back and did a, another prequel movie. Oh, yeah. That would, that, that would actually be kind of fun. Um, let's see what else I have here. Um, Death Needs Comedy. Part of the stylization. <laughs> so, going off script. Yeah. <laughs> going off script. <laughs> because the movie was so entertaining to watch that I couldn't even take notes because I was just so. And it's not like you haven't seen it. Yeah, twenty times. Seen it a bunch of times. Well, what was it you said? This is the one film Spielberg's directed that he can just sit back, watch, and enjoy as an audience, and not. Yeah, Spielberg. I mean, he did some interviews during the 30th anniversary screening because, of course, he resaw it. You know, and um, he's like, "Yeah, this." Out of all my films, this is the one the most. I can just sit back and watch it and just be an audience member and not think about what I would have changed or done differently, you know. And probably because the film turned out way better than maybe they even anticipated or hoped for. Hoped for. Sometimes it's just magic. It was a great success, yeah. Sometimes you just... you. It's you, more than the sum of its parts. Yeah. You know? It is more than the sum of its parts. Or sometimes you can sit there and an micromanage and 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 analyze and and over, and I sort of get that too. Even with um, you know, and I think everybody can sort of do this sometimes. I was I I knew someone who did it, his own comic book, and he has literally redone the lettering on his comic book three or four times because he's like, oh, this font isn't quite right. The way I styled the balloon wasn't quite... I wanted to do a different color for this. And he still hasn't released his book because he still keeps going back and tweaking, tweaking yeah. the balloons and the lettering and the fonts, and it needs to be just perfect. And um, and I don't know. There, there comes a point when when I think perfect isn't for you to decide anymore, even though you're the artist or you're the creator or you're the one working on it. Perfect really is for the audience to decide. Yeah, and like, and sometimes you don't even know when you've nailed it, it cause you're, to them now because yeah. you're too close to the work, like you're so close to like the minutia. And I think I think that's what Spielberg's kind of saying is there is he's not yeah. so close to this work anymore. Like it's the one work you can just look at and say like, well, what's great about Raiders? This is and this is an audience movie. It belongs to the audience. Now. Is I'll throw in a Peter Jackson quote. Okay. Um. You know, people would ask, hey, are you worried about what fans are going to think about Lord of the Rings? And, you know, these books have been around for so long. And Peter says, I'm the biggest fan of Lord of the Rings I know. So I'm worried about what I think about it as a fan. But I want to. And it shows. I want to make the it, movie I want to make because that's what I want to see as a fan. And didn't George Lucas say that about when someone asked him, why are you making Raiders of the Lost Ark? He said, I'm making this because that's what I want to see. Because I want to see it. And no one else is going to make it, you know. And there's no better quote about Spielberg got making. that vision and wanted to see it too. He wanted to realize that vision. And that more than anything got me interested in making films. Not because yeah. I you wanted to be the a director it, or and the heart behind movie, it. But I just I just want to see stuff. I just want to see this. Yeah. Yeah. I want to tell that story. 
I want to bring that to life. And um, let's talk about the scene on the horse. Such a great scene. He rears back and he comes out and he says, <laughs> Finally, how are you going to get the truck? How should I know? I'm making this up as I go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's that kind of self-aware humor <laughs> that is just all over this film and wonderful, you know. He, uh, yeah, the, the guy dies by the propeller and then he gets on the horse and he gets on the truck and he's finding the people off. This is the truck with the Ark of the Covenant in the back of it. After Driving Marianne people takes off the road. Mary, I think Marion does have a higher body count than Indito's in this movie. Yeah. They're <laughs> arguing like, how many people does Indy kill? And Marion like, man, that one machine gun shot. Was yeah. It does. <laughs> <laughs> but it's wartime and it's justifiable. <laughs> We're like, Indy flat out shoots three people. And the fourth one, I'm going to say it's like a... You know, no other choice situation at the bar with the, yeah. the guys. But at the same time, the Lone Rangers just shoot everyone. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know he was gonna happy. It's it's a little different with with Raiders. Even when he shoots the driver of the truck, you see the blood fall down off his hands. You didn't normally see that kind of like aftermath, and the consequence of him shooting the driver of the truck is the truck falls over and blows up, yeah. and he thinks he's killed Marion. So he blames so that, himself. So he blames himself. Oh. Yeah, that's why he's so despondent. Oh. Commiserating with the monkey in yeah. the bar. Who then dies. Because of the date. Yes. It's a great slow motion catch of the date. <laughs> Although, uh, and even and Belloc even rubs it into him. You know, he even says, it was not I who brought the girl into this. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a great action scene. Driving the guy off the road, he goes off this huge cliff. And <laughs> <crash. Yeah. laughs> Where'd that cliff come from? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I mean, to get him thrown out the window and then going oh, underneath is... the, uh, the truck and then getting dragged from the truck and going back. And, and, and I know I've, I've said this before, but you, you mentioned second unit director, director Michael Moore. Not the Michael Moore you're thinking of, but Mickey <laughs> yeah. Moore. Mickey Moore, okay. Mickey Moore, who yes, wrote... Uh, not the a, documentarian. A, who literally started as a child actor under Cecil B. DeMille in the silent era of movies. Mm-hmm. And then went on to be a lifeguard and a surfer, and he was trained under Duke Kananamoku, um, you know, the Duke of Dukes of Malibu. And then got back into filmmaking later on as a prop master, which he worked on the second Ten Commandments, also under Cecil B. DeMille. And ended up uh, going into second unit directing after that. I was, and he was on, he was one, one of Pepperdine's, he lived in Malibu, had a house oh, okay. on a great surf break in Latigo Canyon. Let me go there. And while I was working at Pepperdine, I met him because he was on the... Um, yeah, they they had an advisory council for their new multimedia arts program, and and he became part of that. And he was telling everyone about this famous story, because he had been a second unit director, or done some directing himself, but he was brought on board to work on Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he was definitely like the senior person on staff. Like of everybody who was working on that that movie, he was yeah, it's a bunch of kids. He was say he was saying it. And and they had come back from all their location scouts, and they were meeting with Spielberg to to get his approval for all the locations they had picked to shoot the film with. 
and Steve was okay with it. Everyone's like, yes, this is great. This is great. Mr. Spielberg is fine. And he said he didn't even really know who Steven Spielberg was. So he was <laughs> he wasn't like intimidated. He felt like it was okay. He could when they asked him his opinion of the locations. He felt like it was okay to give his opinion. Like he felt like he looked at at him and said, "Steve, the 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 shots you're you're asking me to do and the the what you want to deliver with this scene, which was the truck chase scene." Mm-hmm. I said, "I can't give you what you want. You you you're you're looking for an action packed scene of of moving vehicles." But the location for it is all flatland. Yeah. So if I shoot this, you're just going to be shooting moving vehicles against empty sky. There's going to be no illusion of them going through anything. Oh, well, he's right. And, and Spielberg said, well, well, what should we do? You know, what do you want to do? I said, let me take a crew back, uh, another location crew, and, and scout for different locations to shoot the sequences at. And so, it was, and it was like the one thing where he said, "Okay, yeah, we'll give you the budget to do that." You know, and they and he sent Mickey Moore back out to Tunisia, and they got, as you saw, like much more. They 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 created you know the the structures with the people building the with the ladders, and they they added the that's all those trees, and they got they they had a much more you know that sequence now runs through things rather than just empty desert. We wouldn't have the truck chase sequence as we have it today if Mickey Moore hadn't spoken out at that and location thank goodness meeting. he did. Because that was tremendous. And they brought him back for Temple of Doom and the Last Crusade. Oh, great. So he was second unit on all, all of them. And, and just a wonderful guy. What an incredible life. I mean, just... Just uh, nonchalant and nice, and, and it was actually privileged. I got to try to help him publish his memoirs, uh, which he did get published about a year before he passed away, which was amazing. It's called uh, My Magic Carpet Ride of Films by Mickey Moore. L- look it up. You can. It's I'm trying to think the name of the, the company that's publishing it now, but it's available on Amazon and I think the iBookstore and Apple's, so Barnes & Noble. We really, really good guy. Talked a little bit about the John Williams score, one of his best scores. And we saw John Williams in concert perform it, and that was awesome to see. Oh, it's gonna. And he he swam like fifty laps in Pepperdine's pool, all, and he was like in his seventies every morning. Mm-hmm. Woke up. Good for him. Swimmer and surfer. Yeah. Sounds like a good guy. Yeah. Wish I could swim fifty laps every morning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are you a fan of the John Williams? Yes. <laughs> As Spielberg himself said, you know, Indy wouldn't have known when to when to punch the villain or kiss the the girl <laughs> if it wasn't for the score telling him to. Yes. That's um Yeah. You can I can listen to William's score and actually know every moment of the film that I'm listening to. It's so it's so colorful. It tells so the story by yeah. itself. It's so yeah. It has everything. Raiders maybe more than almost any other. I need a piece of that score right now. You want to increase the volume. (laughs) (laughs) The volume. Uh That horn section is going for it.
it's it's romance, it's adventure, it's epic, it's triumphant. It's perfect. It's almost this message of life may keep knocking you down, but this score will pick you back up and make you keep going. I mean, this... Dang romantic. This ah, I mean, just got on my bicycle after hearing the last vestiges of that at the end credits and just was <laughs> so pumped, just <laughs> leaving the theater. Ready to conquer the universe. I mean, so good and so, I mean. I've always said that about, if someone asked me, like, what, what is it about filmmaking? What is it that you would want? Why, what made you want to be a filmmaker? And it's that, it's that nobody wakes up in the morning, nobody goes to a movie today thinking to themselves, boy, I hope I never feel walking out of a film the way I felt walking out of Raiders of the Lost Ark for the first time. Yeah. You know, like, we've all been looking for that for 30 years. Like, after Star Wars and Raiders and Back to the Future, that's what we want when we go to the movies. We want to feel that amazing. Like, we just came on that big of an adventure or that large of a journey and internalized it. Actually, you know, weren't just entertained by it, but actually wanted to incorporate elements of that. C.S. Lewis said that, or Tolkien said this. Tolkien. Tolkien. Tolkien said this in defense of fairy stories. Uh, they were arguing to, to take you know certain fairy stories out of the British school systems. And in defense of them, uh, Tolkien was saying, when you read a story about, say, a child uh, facing down a schoolyard bully and he wins, well, if the kids go and apply that to, to real life, sometimes the bully doesn't always just back down. Sometimes the bully does beat them up. And... And sometimes, even though those stories are supposed to be realistic, they don't actually reflect reality. Yet, when you use fairy tales or fantasy or science fiction, and the child reads about Sir Gawain and the and the green green dragon, and you know, does does he does he really leave the theater or leave the story you know, wanting to go buy a suit of armor, walk through the through the jungles every day, sleep under rain and torrents and and in the dirt? To find somewhere, no. But what what he does find, what he can take from that character, is the character's heart, is the mm-hmm. character's nobleness, is the the sense of what drove that character. And I think in the same way, um, you know, movies do this for us. Raiders and Star Wars and and even animation, they allow us to become the characters without necessarily needing to have our lives changed to reflect the circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've always thought there was um, kind of a disservice done, you know, when, when people watch, like, more soap opera-ish things, like, say, 90210, which was, you know, set, and you kind of look at it and you say, oh, this could be like real-life high school. I'm like, no, this isn't going to be like real-life high school. There is no high school that's like this. As a matter of fact... It's hyperbolic. It's I was, exaggerated. Yeah. I was working as a sub at Torrance High where they shot 90210. 
And literally all the students there were annoyed because every time they shot there, they would rope off areas of the school. They wouldn't let the actual students ever be on camera as I hired a bunch of really beautiful looking extras to be <laughs> to be the rest of the students at the school. And and it's like, you know, this is nothing like like high school <laughs> in <laughs> in actual Southern California. So there was that I thought that was very ironic that 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 there are teenagers across the country that that love this show except for the actual teenagers at the high school where it's shot at. <laughs> yes, and not to argue, but you know, there are SAG code and regulations about there's a reason they they pick their extras and have the controlled environment and people that they're paying to be there. Yes. Yeah, because you have some random high schoolers who are fans. They could easily disrupt the scene and do whatever. Which I, you know, I understand, you know. That. and that's you know part of just filmmaking in the process. But it, yeah. in any case, it's just saying it's. Um, okay, but, but 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 back to what Tolkien was saying. Yes. It, it's about you know we believe that these stories can give can inspire the spirit. Yeah. And they don't need to be set in reality in order to have a positive effect. That guy knew what was up, you know. I mean, and your age when this came out, this is when you're reading Tolkien mm-hmm. as well. So you had all this intake, all this stuff shaping you. I did. You know, all this creative energy going on. Now, let's use a very real example, though, because Indiana Jones... Um, it made you think about storytelling and you did write a story my summer and it's set in Hawaii far off exotic locations. There's adventure. There's a mystery. There's kind of ancient artifacts and stories and kids puzzling. You know, I see some similarities there, Oh, you know, and that, and that storytelling. Thanks. Thank Any uh, <laughs> comment on that? Uh, I don't think it was a direct influence, but that sort of style of storytelling. Well, it was more, much more influenced by my time at Disney and, and being around all those great creative storytellers and seeing how they would research mythology and, and, and periods and pieces, and they would take these fairy tales and, and kind of reshape them with a modern narrative structure and, and give them fun animated cinematic sequences and, and great motivation, and, but still keep the core of what the, uh, the message was affecting the characters. And I was, but of course they were, I think, I think you've pointed out that Aladdin has lots of references back to Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> I did. I'm like, it's the Cave of Wonders, you know, that whole opening to it. And yeah, it yeah, totally is very much an adventure hero. Very much the Cave of Wonders is very much Indy in the temple with the, the golden idol and escaping out of it while everything's falling around around him. It's, you know, picking up yeah, the... Yeah, and that's, you know, one of your all-time favorites, Aladdin. So and it was it was also that sense so, of right from you're carrying on the proud tradition, right from story. what you know and and in a lot of sense the main I'm not going to say the main character is me but the the sort of like some of the difficulties he faces with his family life and I yeah. thought well I want to do something different and I would say like we always have heroes who are orphans 
or they've lost a parent, but we've never had a hero who came from a divorced household. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that didn't really exist back in fairy tale land, but it's something that kids today really have to deal with. And that was something I had to deal with growing up. So I wanted to write a story that kind of spoke to how do you heal? How does that affect you as a child? And how do you heal that? And it's and I don't even know if you you picked up picked up on this much. And I mean, I'll let the story speak for itself. But when I came from, what is my main character and what is his internal struggle and story and motivation? Mm-hmm. Um, that particular circumstance informed that. So I kind of took that, I, you know, that was my idea for here's a hero, here's what he has to deal with. Now here's the set of circumstances that form the story around him and, and the struggles, what he has to, yeah. to do through the story. So much as maybe Indiana Jones has an internal struggle with Marion, right? You mm-hmm. know, wow, was I kind of a jerk to her? Do I want to admit that? Do I, you know, you know I did what I did, but you don't have to like it. <laughs> we can help each other out now. Yeah, and, and your character does go on a very Campbellian monomyth story of you start off at his his home and then he gets on a plane and and he he's in the unknown now. Yep. He's you know, and we're seeing going on this journey th- through his eyes. And there is mythology, right? Mytho- like if you read Greek mythology, the Greek yeah. gods are very fallen. They have all sorts of these very human characteristics. And if you read them, they are, they are reflections of what man is, right? Man created these gods kind of in their own image to have all these fallacies and, and all these weird interpersonal relational, let's say messed up relationships. When you look at the Greek gods, I mean, look at the story of the Minotaur and how that came about. That was, I read that in high school. I'm like, really? You, you can teach this in high school? <laughs> it seems... <laughs> your species erotica? <laughs> what? <laughs> exactly. Um, so there was, there was a bit of, okay, well, I, you know, I, I, I'm, my family's from Hawaii. I've traveled there. I fell in love with the place and the people and, and the culture. And my grandparents introduced me to some ancient Hawaiian mythology through storybooks when I was younger. And I said, I really want to do something that incorporates this. I want to do something that incorporates not just the land, but the mythology and the, and the stories that entranced me and sort of, and like, and Hawaiian mythology is also a little bit, uh, yeah, I, (laughs) I, a little wacky. I, I I need to track this book down. I wish I could remember the name of it. It was done in beautiful watercolors, but it was the story of of this girl who this guy was given to this chieftain, and every time she was given to him, he took her up the top of the mountain and killed her. And then the next day, the gods would bring her back to, would bring her back to life. And so finally, he to keep her dead, or he buried her under rocks and the owls that would come to bring her back to life couldn't bring her back to life that day and then somehow she became part of the weather system in that area you know and it was really crying over her I mean it was just I can't remember it that well but I remember I remember her smashing over the head with a stick and crushing yeah. blow to the head and this watercolor of these owls sitting over her grave for the last time when they couldn't move the rocks that were covering her and I was like yeah, that's kind of... Thanks, Grandma and Grandpa. I'm, I'm <laughs> traumatized for life now. But, it, but there was something... In, it's a date. <laughs> but there was something enchanting about it. I, I don't know how else to say that. There was something... 
Yeah, I want to track that story down. Just well, it's, it's like the, you know, the original Brothers Grimm fairy tales, you yeah, know, these, these, these sort of dark cautionary tale, but exciting elements to it, you know, because vicariously this stuff isn't happening to you, and you can kind of... Well, and there's, there's also an element of, of children in actual danger, not in comedic danger, not in like, oh, these villains are so tomfoolery, buffoonish, but... I wanted to give it more that that thing that we got from maybe the the John Christopher stories of you know Pool of Fire and, and the White Mountains, or um, Wrinkle in Time, or or even you know you could eat Silver on the Tree. Um, you know that that there's there's real danger and real consequences. You know it's not um, it's not just just safe and fun and that's and that even goes back to scooby-doo a little bit speed racer you know original occasionally good characters would would perish during the course of an episode in that show and while nobody actually ever died in scooby-doo in the original series it was dark enough the 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 designs on the monsters were scary enough the backgrounds were dimly lit and well painted and mysterious and shadowy that it's actually creepy I mean, it's truly, and I got the feeling they lightened the show up because they felt like it was too scary for younger kids, but I like the fact that it was too yeah. scary for me as a five-year-old. It was, and that's what it should be, because I felt that thrill. I was really excited and scared, and it was a fun scare, like Poltergeist, you know what's that? we got some work to do now, Scooby. And, and I wanted to you? make... Um, we know you'll catch that villain. <laughs> And Tamino's kind of kind of pattern. He's a little inspired by Encyclopedia Brown. He's a little bit of a co- and you know Sherlock Holmes is kind of you know was Encyclopedia Brown was patterned after Sherlock Holmes. He's kind of a caustic character. He's not very likable. He's more mm-hmm. he's more of a know-it-all and he knows everything. But he's Sherlock Holmes. And he's kind you know of Batman is Sherlock he's with a cape. Kind of a jerk. Batman is Sherlock with a cape. Yeah. He's kind of a jerk about it, a likable jerk. And I like the way like they did it, that Robert Downey Jr. portrayed him in the movies, is that he's he's off, or or the way Disney portrayed him in Great Mouse Detective. Oh, Basil, Basil is, of Baker Street. Basil is kind of mean to this little orphan girl who's coming to him for help when he first, yeah. when she first, oh, you're like, he's so, he's so consumed by, by analyzing the ballistics on this gun and this muscle, and he just totally ignores her, and he just... I don't know that he means to be a jerk, but he's so self-absorbed yeah. that he doesn't, uh, you know, he doesn't quite get to to help her at the beginning. They they just nail that aspect of Sherlock Holmes, both both in Basil and in the the Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to add so. that Indy is so proactive in what he's doing, and that's what he has in common with some of these great characters. Yes. And he, he has a love and a passion, and that drives him. And at the very least, he's delaying the Nazis on their mission. He's and making it harder on for them. the goal. He's focused on yeah. the goal. And that's something we can all take away from it, is, you know, look at the, the vision and the, you know, the driving force of this guy. When I love the, the befuddled professor, he doesn't really, I mean, he's so engaged. Well, he's in less our... comfortable in that setting, it seems like, you know. Yeah. Dressed up in the monkey suit, and you know, he's you know he's kind of more of an introvert. And it's great what 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 I think even Harrison Ford really brings to that role. The more I see it, the more I I can see how much of it is 
you know, he's... It's a nuance. Yeah, and he's like he's always said that's why he likes the character and likes coming back to it. There's more there. To, there's so much there for him to work with. Yeah. Even though it's a it's a you know, you'd think on the outset of it, oh, it's just it's just a comic book movie. It's a 19 it's a reworking of a 1930s yeah. serial. But it's more than that. And it's wonderful in in the wake of Star Wars and that kind of story to have a hero in the second chapter of his life where he's not training in this. He's been through all that. He's had the older mentor that has taught him stuff, be it, you know, um, Ravenwood and his father and other people. And he's been through that, and now he's he's already operating at that level. Yes. Kind of a thing. Yes, he's already in the, uh, the third act of his own hero's journey. Yeah. So second or third act. And I love the, um, <laughs> it's always fun watching Harrison Ford in interviews about Temple of Doom. He's like, well, Lacey, you know, I am, I am two or three years older and the movie is set four years before Raiders, so that's seven years and I am feeling them. I'm <laughs> 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 yeah. spring chicken. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I thought that was just really funny. <laughs> And that's actually an important point because the fact is Raiders is not an origin story. It's not the secret origin. It's a guy who's been doing this. It's established. It's, it's the dark night of the series. We're playing catch up to this guy, you know, who's in operation. I never thought of that before. Anyways. Yeah, that's, that's why in Last Crusade you get the, uh, the flashback sequence for the opening. Give you a little taste of you know, what got Indiana Jones into this archaeology thing in the first place. Indeed. So. And, and it was a relationship with his dad. The, the Last Crusade's really about Indy's relationship with his father. Well said. That's true. So in closing, let's just sum up why is Raiders of the Lost Ark so damn good? It's just a perfect movie. <laughs> uh, but even, how no is matter it a perfect how, movie? I don't, even Spielberg himself, I don't think can I describe it, right? Why is it he can watch that movie and not analyze it? Why is it that's the only film he's made that he can just sit back and be an audience member at? Because it just is. I mean, I could... It could talk about the elements that I think, you know, like I said, the lack of, there's there's not that much in the way of special effects or filming-ish stuff. There's a lot of stuff in Raiders that's not very, um, like when you sit back and you analyze movies and you kind of like say, oh, look at this shot and look at this track and look at this and break it down to its component parts. But as you said, it's it's more than the sum of its parts. You see all these parts got put together, but you never see the parts anymore. You see the whole. You are part of the adventure. Well, I would I would say this, and then I'll let you finish. You know, it's just it's the perfect storm. It's two hungry filmmakers looking back at their own childhood, paying homage to the things that captured their imagination as children, putting their own spin on it, the right edge, darkness, action, humor, everything that's coming from their own head and heart and experience. Oh, the passion. They're there. putting out there. Yes. They love this. They believed in it. Nobody else did. And the studio said, yeah. well, what is this? No one's made a movie like this in 30 years. Yeah, yeah it's not going to sell. George and Stephen are very much 
not Indiana Jones. Um, and yeah, that's the magic. They believed in their source material, and they took it and they made it their own. Mm-hmm. See, they didn't just retell it. They 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 took they took what they loved about it, and they added themselves to it and made it their own. And and it was just told the story and didn't back down. It's it's simple. It's complex. It's involved. It's interesting. There's. And, and they did it with a straight face. Yeah. And they did it well. And they did, you know. You know, just like Superman the movie, right? There's not there's not a lot of like, oh, we got to make this funny for the audience or we have to do this. If there's funny moments in Raiders, yeah, it's, it's because organic. it's organic. Yes. Yeah. It's it's part of what was going on on screen at that moment. Yeah. And it's all about the story though. Everything's got to serve that story. And so much there's not as much as everything co- totally flows in Raiders, the more I watch it, the more I realize there's not a wasted second. There's not a wasted line of dialogue. There's not a... Do you see that? Do you see how every scene really means something in that movie? Every yeah. single one? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, there you have it, folks. Caleb and Kent signing off. This has been the movie that changed my life. Or Kent's life, in this case. <laughs> what happened and to my... <laughs> somebody used to buy me a drink. <laughs> you know? Drink? Yeah, that's a music.